Ahoy there! You're listening to Product FM, a podcast focused on everything you need to find product market fit. The more narrow and focused you are, the more chances you have to succeed, because then you understand how to fine-tune. So we're actually recording from uh, Ruli's place right outside of Tel Aviv. Ruli, thanks so much uh, for joining me today for this conversation. Hi, Omer. Thanks for inviting me. So we've got so much to cover. This is maybe almost like three decades of, of doing, creating startups from scratch, exiting. We've basically gone through the, the entire exercise. So I think specifically, why don't we target PMF, product market fit, because it seems like it's We've got quite interesting, even more than one story. So I think with both startups, as the person wearing the, the product hat most of the time, you've gone through this exercise of finding the, the perfect figure and what exactly is the product and what problem exactly you guys solving in, in, in both of those types. So maybe we start with more like an overview of the two startups, like what exactly was the story like? Yeah. Sure. So I think that uh, overall, if I'm going back to from the, the beginning of the days of my, my, my work in this industry, it actually began with... A company named Hotbar in 1999, we were B2C, uh, and there actually we developed uh, almost a science from today with A-B testing is so familiar and obvious back then, if it was, it was not so common, uh, and we took it to really when, I call, when I'm talking about science, taking the data as far as we can with running sample groups and testing distribution channels and performance of different versions of the product. So. It began there. After this company was acquired, me and two other executives from that startup founded Gigia, which evolved to be, through after two pivots, to become a, actually a B2B vendor offering a SaaS service, SaaS for customer identity management. This company was acquired by SAP, and then I began with a door. Shani, the recent venture called OwnID, which maybe we'll have time to talk about. Cool. Wow, that's a lot. Maybe uh, you just mentioned briefly that you've gone to through like at least two pivots with from Hotbar to Kikia and, and through the, the sale eventually. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what were those pivots and how did you guys came to actually decide that you need to change the direction of the product? Sure. So I think that it relates to something that I'm very keen uh, to talk about. I usually try to bring it up because many times in such interviews, the this area is not discussed enough, I think, around entrepreneurship. And it's very much related to product market fit. And I'm talking about the ability to really listen to the market. I think that one problem that creative people have is that they're concentrated with themselves that they fall in love with their ideas and are very hard to to see that things are maybe different from how they see them and i think that pivot is a proof for a company to listen in time when pivot is successful because if it's done when you really are failing it might be too late but it's a proof for a company to really be uh, show that they are listening to the market seeing early enough that there is something that they need to change, understand what it is and making that change. We can talk you know, more specifically about the pivots that we went through, but I think that uh, that's the core of, of my message here is that all the time you need to, you don't need to follow what the market is saying, but you need to listen to the market to understand 
why it is saying what it is saying. For example, when you're selling, for example, to businesses, <clears throat> a good product manager, and by the way, the CEO should be in some way the product manager of the company, as I see it. When they're, for example, asked for certain things that the product doesn't do, it's not going and doing that thing immediately. It's understanding why it is being asked, connect, trying to connect it with where the, how the market is evolving and where it evolves and then taking the right action. So when I'm saying listening to the market, it's not listening and doing what the market says, but it, it is listening. Interesting. I think I've run into similar situations where I sometimes console or talk with friends. I see either founders trying to find a use case for a specific technology because they have that technology, especially with AI, or just founders falling in love with an idea and just pursuing it. And, and it's, it seems almost you need a little bit of humility to be able to listen and do this, take this U-turn. And uh, specifically, you, you touched on CEO as like the CEO is part-time the CPO or part-time product manager or something like that. And I think that some CEOs are very much focused on the business because they want to keep the company alive, especially with startups, with VC-backed startups and also bootstraps. They want to keep the company alive, so they're very much focused on the sales funnel, the business, and they let the product people like, quote unquote, do the, the product work, come up with the roadmap. Like, what's your take on that? Because I think that's not exactly how you see the CEO. So I think that it's not so uh, crazy to hear the statement that the, this, the, the company will fall or succeed, first of all, upon the product and product market fit, which is part of the product. And therefore, the CEO needs to be uh, involved with the details. But maybe I want, when I'm saying to take it further, I want to talk you know, in a higher level. When Giga was acquired, it was already uh, 100 million in ARR and uh, 300 employees. So we really went through from zero to scale. And what I learned there is that each stage is a startup of its own in terms of the challenge. So maybe the first stage is the product and maybe creating and setting up the, the business model. And then in that point, the CEO needs to be the product manager. He or she cannot just delegate it. I have an idea, I want to do X and hire someone. I will hire a product manager that will create it. But let's say then the product is ready and is really good and the CEO acted in the way I just suggested. And now they want to go to the market, setting up you know, the positioning, uh, and the messaging of the company. So, you know, the next uh, natural step is to hire a VP of marketing. So yeah, go ahead and, and hire someone like that. But you're, you need to be the VP of marketing. That's the new startup that you need to crack this, this strategy and how you do it, the tactics around it in the marketing and everything that is related to the marketing. And when, you know, the marketing is ready and you did that because it's as challenging as coming up with a product. It's, that's why I call it another startup. And then starting to sell things, uh, to sell, to do, from doing the sales pitch to hiring, to how in, you incentive the organization, the sales organization, you need to do it. You cannot just hire someone to do it because again, maybe much of the work is, is known, but also much of it is unknown and is new to the specific space, to this product, and you need to come up and do it. And that's again, another new challenge, maybe a more general tip to anyone who wants to become an entrepreneur. You need to understand that you need to be successful in three or four startups to be successful. Your journey is going to include be successful in three or four startups 
till you are successful with your startup. The next one is just growth. We learned that any stage that the, go the company goes through is a startup of its own because when you grow, you need to keep, of course, the, the pace of growth and, and it's beco it becomes harder when percentage-wise, it's maybe the same percentage and like growing 30% year over year, but changing from one to $3 million in revenue to three to $10 million in revenue is a whole new, different operation. And, and it requires you to, for example, how the knowledge is trend between the management levels and how, again, things like incentives and suddenly politics get into this, this game between the executives. So you just deal with each stage of the growth. So you deal with new set of challenges. So that's another, like the fourth maybe startup that you need to, to, to uh, resolve. Interesting. So basically you're saying the startup would go into different phases. Each one of those phases is, is like running a startup and you gotta be successful in each one of the phases. Like you're going to be as strong as the, the weakest point in the chain. Interesting. And I've got a lot of bullet points right here in front of us. One of them says the art of listening. And this is something I'm, I was actually uh, wondering about what, when you say CEO and the entire company founders need to be humble, listen to the market, but not do what the market says, but really understand what the need is. What, based on your experience, this is a tough one, so I'm putting you on the spot. What frameworks um, do you think product people and fathers can use to make sure that they do it well? There's a trade-off between identifying a signal for something new every month and staying in focus. There's a trade-off between executing and not listening at all to constantly interviewing people and changing the roadmap. So what was the framework you guys used and how do you see this? I think the first thing is focus and being narrow. I think the more narrow and focused you are, even though it sounds like you're limiting yourself to a very narrow market, market size is small, just you need to have a big vision, of course, where you can grow from there. But the, narrow, the more narrow and focused you are, the more chances you have to succeed because then you understand how to fine tune. Focus, it's both on what the product does. So it does a very simplistic functionality, let's say, and also the market. So instead of addressing all the fintech for, I don't, or not fintech, all financial institutions, you can address just institutions that are giving, that are focused on loans and niche both in the market. And then also begin with a very, very specific offering. And I think that I gave an example that maybe relates to B2B, but on B, on also it, it, it's, it's correct on B2C. First of all, this discussion is a little bit different when we're talking about B2C and B2B because B2C is more of the science that I mentioned before. B2C is really sitting in front of data and analyzing. It's not interviewing because very hard for people to, to say how they will, what they will use and how would they will use it. You need to just measure it and not ask about it. So I think that in B2C, again, you begin with something very focused also for people it's much easier to for the like the target audience or the market to connect with a simple message well, 100 your your offering is solving 100 problems or 10 problems around the same subject people will use surprisingly enough people will use you more if you're just solving one problem rather than 10 problems mm. because they have they can put a cell in their mind 
for that connects this problem with your name. They will not put 10 cells in their mind, and it's much easier for them to do that. Google equals search, for example. Yeah, of course. Uh, Twitter, think of how simple it is. Of course, once you become successful and you occupy more in their mind, in their uh, brain, then you can expand like Facebook or many other. If you look at the successful services, Airbnb, I don't know, you will see that they all began with a simplistic offer, even Uber, uh, simplistic offering, and then they expanded. Don't begin with an expansion, not only because of the product development, but also how it is easy to, to be perceived. So that's taking it back to the, the focus and the narrow. So on B2C, um, you just need to, to test very basic functionality to see the churn, to see how it is, if it's viral, and to try and, and adjust. When it comes to B2B, it's more of a sales operation. And then I think you need to understand something really critical for anyone who is, who is launching a B2B uh, offering. Obviously, they need to want what you're doing. But then after that, it's not about how much it costs. It's about how much attention they and their organization need in order to begin using your product. So if it is, for example, requiring their developers to do something, you're going to be far away from a successful sales cycle. If they need to have 10, 10 different people approve it, again, because they, each one is concerned they're on, on their, their existing task list and their job. And um, bringing something new can add them a few points but it's much less, uh, it has much less weight than just doing what they are asked to do, even if they're very senior. And what I'm saying is that you need to find the easiest path for them to get value from your product, easiest both in terms of implementation, but also in terms of, of approval or how much it disrupt, disrupts, even if it's super valuable to their business. If it's a big disruption, it's going to be too hard for you to penetrate. So begin with something small, even small impact on their business, but very easy for them to try out and then take it from there. Yeah. Okay. So that's, we, we're going a bit on like a different track of the, the sort of like go to market, uh, especially with B2B. And that's, I think that's super interesting. So maybe we get back to that a, a bit later, but I think touching on just to wrap up with product market fit, do you think, and this might be a bit practical, but do you think there's anything a product folks and founders should have in mind when they structure the company when we're talking about startups that are more than five people obviously and you you start thinking about the structure and who's doing what who is reporting to whom is there anyway or even like frameworks of how to work like do we do sprints how long do we give for an idea to develop and things like that do you think there are any frameworks that can accelerate finding PMF. The one thing that is interesting that I learned actually even a few years ago within Gigia when Gigia was uh, already uh, pretty successful is that large organizations like your B2B clients, if it's like Nestle, Coca-Cola, whatever organizations that are your clients, they are eager to get these new technologies. So it's not that anyone that will approach them, they will leave everything and, and adopt it, but once you get the traction, what you, once you have the foot in the door, the interest, and they see that it's not interrupting their you know, current uh, to-do list too much, they, they, will, they, will be, they need you as much as you need them. And therefore, of course, you can't uh, risk them on security issues, for example, 
because they don't want to, they have huge liabilities. But if things break, they're okay. For example, Gigia was hacked once by the Syrian Electronic Army. We were implemented by hundreds of clients. Uh, and in one minute, a pop-up, because uh, there was a, a JS of, us, of ours included on the pages of all our clients, including all the leading media outlets like Wall Street Journal, The Independent in the UK, NBC and others. At one moment, a pop-up popped up on all the homepages of all our clients saying hacked by the elect Syrian electronic army and because of us. And then the news was that these and these websites were hacked, which wasn't the case because Giga was hacked. And of course, it was a disaster for us. And I you know, can get into what we, how we dealt with that and how we resolved it, but it was a disaster. And surprisingly, it didn't affect the business too much. Really? Yeah, we recovered. They all continued working with us. They understood. We explained what happened. We explained why it will not happen again or what we did to avoid this from happening again. And we lost, I think, I don't know, 3% of our business in terms of uh, renewals because of that incident. Wow, interesting. Okay, we'll, in the not too far future, we'll need to uh, regroup and talk about uh, crisis management for B2B. I think there's a lot to discuss. Um, another way to, to tackle this subject, I think, interestingly, is maybe to ask, and we touched on it, but maybe to ask if there's some bullet points in your mind for what funders usually get wrong. Obviously, specifically first-timers. So this, it, it could be related to, to PMF, but not necessarily. Uh, what do you usually see? I would just say once again, because I think it's so critical, but then I will move forward, that they're falling in love with their idea and they stick to it and they don't adjust it according to what uh, they see uh, in the market. So that's first of all, I think most. The other thing is like uh, Naveen Shada, our main giga investor from May, was saying that most startups don't die of starvation, but of uh, indigestion. Because they tried, and that's also something that is related to uh, creative people, that they have many ideas, they want to do everything. That's a great thing, but we're not artists, and we're serving here a purpose. We need to be connected to the market, we need to understand the business environment, and therefore we need to choose our, our battles or to choose our, you know, what we want to move with and, and leave on the side all our other uh, creative, amazing uh, ideas. So that's the second one. I think that another thing, and it's amazing because everything is related here to personality, to things that you need to work with yourself. The third thing it relates to ego. I think that to be successful, you need to strive to hire people that, and also to add like for co-founders that you think that are at least as smart as you are. Meaning I see many times either executives or founders that feel intimidated working with people that they perceive as stronger than them. But the upside beyond the fact that it's just give, mentally giving up about who you are, because once you go through that step, it, it becomes easy. I think it's just taking this step and, and agreeing that you can learn also from other people. But I think the other hidden big advantage of that is that there will be less friction because once you really, if you look back at, at the kind of friction between people that you had in the past is because all of us probably worked in some way or studied, it's when there is disagreement and you think that you're right. And I think that when you hire people that you really respect, if there is a disagreement, 
you are much less frustrated on, if, on doing it their way. It's much easier to not just stick always with what you think is right. So I think that's the third thing, it, which is, I will summarize it in this way. Hire people that you really uh, think highly of, even more than yourself. In the beginning, that's, I think these are the three most important things. I wrote to myself something that I wanted to mention that is also, I think, an insight that we received. We found out as we evolved with the company, and I call it a diminishing advantage. When you think about it, anything that, let's talk about B2B offering, uh, because it, B2C it might be a little bit different. Any uh, service or product that you do after, let's say it's successful, there must be a, a competition that is, will be coming up. And many times this competition will not be only startups, but also large companies like I don't, Oracle or Salesforce that will uh, either acquire or just throw millions into. And uh, the competition will be very hard. And therefore, I think not at the very beginning, but pretty soon after, you need to realize that this will come up and begin to develop a reason for... Uh, or a way for you to be uh, distinguished from the competition when you're becoming su successful. Because it's not only a matter of having more, com more competition, when there is competition, the, the margin of, of the sale needs to, because at some point price is also a parameter. And, and then the margin also shrinks. And when there is competition, mar margin shrinks, and then it's harder for a company to, to operate. And one of the best ways to, to create such an advantage is a network effect. And that's why kind of a general recommendation, if you're coming up with an idea that potentially has a way to, to gain a, or create a network effect, which means a way for whenever you're, the bigger you are, the stronger is your offering. And it's not the bigger in terms of the market. Uh, and it's not only about the product that makes you strong, but also the market. Um, then you can create a gap that competition will not either will be very hard for or won't be able to, to keep up with. <laughs>